how God was seeking a bride for his son. Each book is different from every other book. I'm trying to give you the keys for you to unlock it for yourself. You're listening to Unlocking the Bible by David Pawson. Visual materials featured in this talk can be found online at davidpawson.org. This is Paul and his letters. Well, for the next few studies, we're going to be looking at quite a large number of Paul's letters. So I thought in this study, before we looked at any of his letters, we'd look at Paul himself and then how he came to write the letters and how we should approach them. So who was this man? We know more about him than about any other apostle. In fact, a third of the New Testament is either by him or about him. If you put Acts together with all his letters, that's over one-third of the New Testament focuses on this one man. And I suppose he's had more influence on 2,000 years of church history than any other person except Jesus himself. Indeed, I would go so far as to say that he's had greater influence on the history of Europe than any other man. So who was he? Well, let's start with his life before we look at his letters. And I just wanted to speak about Paul before his conversion, during his conversion, and after his conversion. Those are the three phases of his life, though the third one is the longest and the most exciting. Well, before he was conversion, he was born in a place called Tarsus in southeast Turkey, as it is today, right in the northeast corner of the Mediterranean. And that was a university city. It was the third most famous university in the ancient world. Athens was number one. Uh, that would be Cambridge. Then Alexandria would be number two. That's because I went there. Alexandria would be Oxford, number two. And... Um, Tarsus would be Durham, number three. Uh, well, I, I'm told that's the order, but there we are. But it was the third most famous university town in the whole of the Mediterranean world. And Paul himself was brought up with a unique combination of three major influences on his life. One was his Jewish parentage. He was a Jew. And he was proud to be a Jew, one of God's chosen people. He wasn't ashamed of that, though he was willing to let it go later but he was brought up to believe in Yahweh, the God of Israel. And God is the first person in his life, right from his childhood. Though he misguidedly thought he was serving God by persecuting Christians. He was born of the tribe of Benjamin, which was one of the 12 tribes that nearly got wiped out in the book of Judges. But it survived and was a very tiny little tribe, but from it came the first king of Israel, Saul. You probably call him Saul, but Saul is the right way to pronounce his name. And this little boy was named after the first king of Israel. Came from the same tribe, so they called him Saul. Later, he was going to give himself a Latin name, Paulus or Paulus, which actually means little. And he was a very little man from all accounts. But that was one strand of his upbringing. As as a boy, he probably moved to Galilee. As far as we know, the family moved to Galilee and then sent the boy to Jerusalem to study under a very famous liberal professor called Gamaliel. And Gamaliel we hear of just once in the Bible, in the New Testament, when he was asked about these Christians. He said, well, let's wait and see. If it's of God, it'll last. If it won't, it'll die out. Typical nailing his colors to the fence. And the result, the result is we never hear of Gamaliel again. 
he was a liberal, broad-minded man, and he was tolerant, and so he said, let's just wait and see, don't get excited about them. But one of his students, Saul, was just the opposite. He said, these Christians are dangerous. He said, this is the greatest threat to our Jewish faith that there's been, and I'm going to fight it hard. The interesting thing is that God can do much more with antagonism than he can with indifference. Years ago I went to speak to a youth club and there were 30 young people there. When I came home, my wife said, how did you get on, as she usually does? I said, well, there's hope for two of them. I said, two of them were so angry with me, there were tears of anger in their eyes, so there's hope for them. The rest just sit, sat and looked at me. Well, we baptised both those two within six months. You can do far more with hostility than you can with indifference. And God could do far more with this student Saul than he could with this professor Gamaliel. Because Gamaliel just sat on the fence and said, wait and see, but Saul said, I'm going to fight this. And therefore he got involved. He cast a vote for the first Christian martyr, or against him. When the vote was taken whether to put Stephen to death, Saul voted to put him to death. And he actually held the coats of the men who threw the stones and killed the very first man to die for Jesus. And from then on, he was kicking against the pricks. His conscience was troubling him. Because of the way Stephen died, his face lit up with glory, and he said, I can see Jesus up there, and into your hands I commit my spirit. Well, the way Stephen died, Saul couldn't get that out of his memory or of his conscience. But he set off as an anti-Christian missionary. He was willing to be a, a missionary against Christians and to leave his own land to go and persecute Christians elsewhere. So he was a missionary before his conversion, but on the wrong side. But he was willing to leave home and family and go and fight those Christians elsewhere. Now, that's a bit of his background. I didn't mention two other influences. That was the Jewish influence. There was the influence of the Greek language. Living in Tarsus, he spoke Greek, and that was the lingua franca of the ancient world. It was like Swahili down through the east coast of Africa. Everywhere you go, you can speak Swahili. And everywhere in the ancient world, somebody could understand Greek. And that was to give him a language in which to preach wherever he went. The other influence on him was Roman law, because his father had presumably uh, been honoured in the New Year's Honours List or whatever of the Roman world and had been made a Roman citizen. Maybe it was because he made a lot of tents for the Roman soldiers, I don't know. But tent making was the family profession into which Saul entered at the age of 12 and uh, forever afterwards he earned his living tent making. But uh, his father became a Roman citizen which made Paul or Saul, the young boy, a Roman citizen also by inheritance. And that gave him certain privileges, which he used when he appealed to Caesar uh, at the end of his life. It, that was exercising his privilege. And when he came to be executed, he was not crucified as Peter was, as Jesus had been. He was beheaded. That was the privilege of a Roman citizen, got it over quickly. Whereas crucifixion was the slowest death of all, no Roman citizen was ever crucified. That was so humiliating, it was beneath a Roman. So he was beheaded. So his Roman citizenship came in very useful. 
and he had the privilege of appealing as any citizen in this country can appeal right up to the House of Lords, so he could appeal right up to Caesar and he did that later. So here is a unique combination of Jewish, Greek and Roman background, ideally fitted to be a missionary for Jesus to the Gentile world. He could hardly have had a better upbringing, which underlines the fact that God prepares you for your life task even before you're a Christian, before you know it. He had his eye on Saul when he was in the womb and he prepared him. But of course there had to come a point where instead of being an anti-Christian missionary, he became a Christian missionary. And there's only one thing that is needed to turn a Jew into a Christian. Actually we shouldn't call any Jew a Christian, it's a Gentile word that came from Gentile Antioch. Jews become complete Jews or true Jews or whatever, they don't become Christians, don't call a Jew a Christian. But he became a believer in Jesus and there's only one thing needed for a Jew to be converted to faith in Jesus and that's to know that Jesus is alive. That's all they need. I remember preaching in Cambridgeshire and a Jewess of about 25 years of age came up to me afterwards. She said, uh, are you saying that Jesus of Nazareth is still alive? I said, yes, I am. She said, but if he is, then he must be our Messiah, our. I said, uh, yes. And she said, how could I find out if he's alive? I said, well, just try talking to him right there. And she did and she found out. Do you know within 10 minutes she was teaching me the Bible. She'd got it all in her background, it was in her blood. The truth was there except for the one key that would unlock it, that Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah. Once she got that key the whole Bible opened up and she was teaching me scripture within 10 minutes of coming to faith. Well you see that's how the whole nation will one day be converted. What has happened to Paul or Saul on the Damascus Road will happen one day to the whole Jewish nation when they look on him whom they pierced and realised how mistaken they were. So that's what happened on the Damascus Road. That first picture is taken up on the Galan Heights because that's where it happened, near a little town called Conetra. And the significance is that as soon as this Jew, this Pharisee, this Jew of the Jew, the Hebrew of the Hebrews, as soon as his feet were on Gentile soil, Jesus of Nazareth met him and said, I'm going to send you to the Gentiles. So his conversion took place off Jewish soil and that was very significant. So he got up onto the Galan Heights just a few hours from Damascus and there Jesus met him. It was just down the hill from where Jesus had been transfigured before Peter, James and John. But this time Jesus was much brighter because this time he saw a Jesus who had ascended again and recovered the glory that he once had before he left his glory and mild he lays his glory by, that's what he did it. But when he ascended and went back to heaven he got all his glory back and that glory would blind you. If we could see the glory of Jesus now, we'd be blinded, our retinas would be scarred. These lights are bad enough for the television but the glory of Jesus. You see Peter, James and John saw the glory of Jesus during his incarnation but not after his ascension when he recovered the glory of the Father again and it was a, a light brighter than the midday sun and it blinded him and he came to repentance and faith. His whole birth process took three days 
and was not complete till a dear old man called Ananias came and prayed with him. Ananias, who was told by God, go and pray with a man called Saul. Saul? He's here to kill us. And this dear old man had to swallow his pride and go. And he said to Saul, I've come that you might be healed and see again, and that you might be baptized in water, and that you might be filled with the Holy Spirit. That's the completion. If you know my little book, The Normal Christian Birth, you know that's the complete birth. And it took three days from his first repentance and faith through to being baptized and being filled with the Spirit. But forever afterwards, Paul saw all that as one thing, as being born again into the kingdom. And he always insisted on all those things for every one of his converts, Acts 19. So that was his normal Christian birth. And uh, he was now ready for work. But it's fascinating that he didn't immediately start being a missionary. He did start preaching. He couldn't keep quiet about it. And very quickly he aroused hostility. He was going to arouse hostility wherever he preached, but primarily from Jews, never from Romans. And they had to let him down in a basket from a window in the city wall. Now it's interesting this man's preparation for his ministry. He did not begin next Tuesday. That's what we want to do. As soon as we hear a call, we want to go drop everything and go and do it. It was going to be at least 13 years before Paul would begin to do what God called him to do that day. Trouble is, God's in a hurry and we're not. Or rather, we're in a hurry and God's not. Let's get it right way round. So said the American preacher, Phillips Brooks. So, for three years he went away into Arabia to think it through to rethink his theology. He didn't go to college, he didn't go to Bible training school, he didn't go and consult anybody, he just spent it alone with the Lord, because he was special. He was the last person to see the risen Lord. He claimed that he was the last apostle of that kind, a special one. Number 13, some people have tried to say he should have been number 12 in Judas Iscariot's place. That's quite wrong. Paul always recognised the 12 never count himself as part of them. But he was number 13 and he kept claiming that special apostleship. Have I not seen him? Did he not call me? And so he is that kind of an apostle that can give us scripture because of his unique relationship with the risen Christ. Well, three years in Arabia thinking it through, it was then that his mind must have worked like this. When Jesus met him on the Damascus Road, Jesus said, why are you persecuting me? And he could have said, I'm not persecuting you, Lord, I'm persecuting these Christians. But he didn't say that because he realised in a flash that whatever you do to Christians, you're doing to Christ. And it was from that insight that his whole theology of the church as the body of Christ grew. Do you understand? It was because he realised that inasmuch as you do it to the least of these his brethren, you're doing it to him, and that literally Christians are his body on earth, and what you do to them, you're doing to him. And so his theology grew out of that encounter with the risen ascended Christ on the Damascus Road. You can trace it all back to that and the thinking he had to do alone in the wilderness of Arabia for three years. But then he went to Jerusalem got into trouble there. They wouldn't believe he was a genuine convert. Well, I mean, would you? 
if somebody had been putting your family in prison then turned up at church the next Sunday morning and said, I've been converted, I think you'd be cautious to say the least. And they were, but dear Barnabas, that lovely man, Barnabas means son of encouragement, and Barnabas is a lovely man. Barnabas is responsible for introducing Saul to the Christian church in Jerusalem. But even so, the Jews in Jerusalem got very upset. I mean, they regarded him as a traitor. He was one of their best rabbis in training, and now he's one of those hated Christians. And so he was sent back to Tarsus for ten years. Now we overlook this, you know, we think of Paul's conversion and straight away we think of his missionary journeys and off he goes to preach. No, three years in Arabia thinking it through, ten years back in his hometown, waiting for that call to be confirmed. And then dear Barnabas comes into the picture again. By the way, that's the road to Damascus, but that's the street called Straight in Damascus, the very street where he was baptized in water and filled with the Holy Spirit and the street is still there today. It's a straight street running right through the middle of Damascus. I thought you'd be interested. Now, not a very good photograph, but of a very important place. You probably don't recognize it. You don't normally see pictures of it. It's a very large city in Syria today, and it's called Antioch. Antioch. Now, that city figures a very great deal in the New Testament, and it was going to figure in Paul's life too. First of all, that is the place where the prodigal son went to spend his money. The far country, there was only one far country in the days of uh, the Gospels, and that was Antioch. It was called the Paris of the ancient world, or the Amsterdam, or the Bangkok of the ancient world. That tells you enough. And if you wanted to live it up, and you were living in Israel, then you got as much money as you could, and you made for Antioch because that's where it all happened, that's where all the nightclubs were, that's where everything happened. That's where the prodigal finished up among the pigs. No question about it. You look at your map, it's the only place to go if you want to paint the town red. It was a bad place, a sinful place. And it was there that the first Gentile Christian church sprang up. And Barnabas was part of that. And that's where the word Christian was first coined. And Barnabas finally, after ten years, brought Saul to Antioch, to a Gentile church. This Jew of the Jews now had to live like a Gentile. And he said he was willing to do this. Years later he said, to the Jew I become as a Jew, to the Gentile I become as a Gentile. I'm willing to live anyway if it'll save some. That's a flexibility that many of us don't have, but we need. Anyway, he came, and it was in that Gentile church that five of them were in a prayer meeting, a couple of teachers, and two or three prophets. And as they were ministering to the Lord, a prophecy came. The time has come. Separate Saul and Barnabas for the work to which I've called them. So Saul really got his call two ways. At his conversion, Jesus told him what he wanted to do, but that was later confirmed through a prophecy in the church. I just want to underline that. There are too many Christians think once they've had a call of the Lord, that's enough. I believe they should wait until the church confirms that call. And then you have a double call from the head and through the body. And when days get tough later, that double call will keep you going.
So Barnabas and Saul were to do their first job together. Actually, it wasn't the first job they had together. They had both been deacons first, treasurers. And the first job the two of them had together in the church at Antioch was to look after the famine fund for Jerusalem. There was a famine in the south in Jerusalem and uh, they, in this church, made a collection and they said, Saul and Barnabas, you would be a good pair to look after the funds. And again, isn't that interesting? Here's a man with a call to the Gentile world and he gets a job in the church looking after the funds. But they did it. And it was the first time those two worked together. Again, we get so impatient to do the big thing quickly, don't we? And yet Saul and Barnabas were willing to do that first. But now they were sent out. Antioch didn't support them financially. They just sent them out. And uh, we'll see how they supported themselves later. And off they went. Now, I'm sure that if you were anything like me at school, you had to draw Paul's missionary journeys until you could draw them in your sleep. That's all I remember. My worst subject at school was scripture knowledge. So there's hope for anyone. But like George Bernard Shaw, my education began when I left school. But I used to draw, that's the only thing the dear vicar who used to teach us left in my mind. And I could draw that in my sleep. And what Saul and Barnabas here in Antioch, you see, here's Jerusalem. The ripples had gone out from Jerusalem till they touched Antioch. Now Antioch was to be the epicenter and the ripples were to spread out until they reached Rome. And Paul's first ambition was to evangelize the whole of the northeast Mediterranean world as far as the capital of the empire. And that's what he and Barnabas set out to do. They set off to Cyprus first, then they went back to the mainland, planted churches around here, Antioch, Lystra, Derby. There's another Antioch there. And then came back and reported to Antioch, their home base, what had happened. Then further afield. And most of Paul's letters are written to churches around the Aegean Sea. I'll show you another map later. And then his third and last journey, shipwrecked in Mo left Crete, shipwrecked in Malta, arrived as a prisoner in Rome. His strategy was to plant a community of the kingdom in every key city and then move on as quickly as possible. Sometimes it was only three weeks, sometimes Corinth, 18 months. And yet sometimes he had to leave, sometimes he chose to leave, but he left behind a church to evangelize the whole district. He didn't try and cover every town. He said, what's the key town? What's the hub of that province? Then let's plant a church there and they can evangelize themselves from then on. And it was a very successful strategy. Instead of trying to do it all himself, he planted a live church and then said, now you evangelize this province, I'm moving on. And so as a true apostle, he was constantly mobile, constantly exploring fresh territory, breaking fresh ground. He says in Romans, it was my ambition not to work where anybody else had worked. I want to break open fresh ground, virgin territory. And so he pressed further and further until crossing that little bit of sea, the gospel came to Europe for the first time and Europe hasn't been the same since. Well, now he went through incredible dangers, 
shipwrecks three times. We only have one account in the Bible. Flogged many times to within an inch of his life, stoned and left for dead. And then after a long list of being hungry and sleepless, he adds this, and on top of everything else, the care of all the churches. <laughs> that seems the peak of his burden. You know, <laughs> shipwreck, flog, that's nothing. But looking after churches, oh, that really is the last straw on the camel's back. And if you know anything about looking after churches, you know that it is. And that it's easier to go to the lions sometimes than meet the deacons. <laughs> but having planted churches and having moved on, of course, he had to follow up his work. And he had a care of all the churches. He didn't like some evangelists come in, have a big crusade, and then move on and forget it. Oh no, he was concerned to build them up, to see that the church grew in quantity and quality. And there were two ways in which he could follow up. One was to revisit. And he often did that. He went back to these little group of churches one year after he'd planted them and was able then to appoint elders in each place. And once an apostle had appointed local elders, his job was done. He writes to Titus and says, I left you in Crete to finish the job by appointing elders in every city. So that as soon as a church had its own local appointed leaders, the apostle's job was finished and he could go. But getting churches established to that point was not easy. So he could either revisit them, but constantly to keep revisiting would prevent him from going further. And his ambition was to evangelize as far as Spain. He wanted to evangelize the whole northern coast of the Mediterranean. What an ambition! But he couldn't be constantly revisiting these churches and going to Spain. So the other way in which he followed up was to write letters. And that's why we've got the letters of Paul in the New Testament. That was his way of following up his evangelism. Now what sort of a man was he? By the way, ultimately, he found himself in Rome as a prisoner on trial for his life. Dr. Luke, his friend, wrote his defense for the judge, the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts as we know them, and he was acquitted on that occasion and released. He went to Spain as far as we know. There is a strong tradition that Paul was in Spain. And he also revisited these areas and went to Crete and Nicopolis and a number of other places he hadn't been before. And then, like Jesus before him, he was betrayed by a metal worker called Alexander. And he was betrayed and arrested the second time under Nero's reign. And he was taken away so quickly that he couldn't even pick up his notebooks or his overcoat. We'll see in the pastoral epistles, Timothy and Titus, how he wrote and said, please send me my overcoat. It's cold. And my notebooks my diaries, please send them. And uh, so that's the story of his life. But what sort of a man was he? Well, we have one description of his appearance, which is not very prepossessing. He was short. Paulus means little. He was bow-legged and hook-nosed and balding, and his eyebrows met in the middle, and his eyes were peculiar, and he had very rough hands. Not exactly uh, prepossessing. And I just sort of imagine a church that's considering Paul to be their pastor. 
And the report comes that he has a peculiar appearance, that he never stays in one place very long, that he usually upsets people, that he's been in trouble with the police, that he's done time in prison, that he's a very dogmatic preacher, that he's not married, that he makes camping gear, that he divides all his congregations, and above all, he speaks in tongues. Now, can you, can you imagine a church being presented with this CV, this curriculum vitae, and saying, just the man to be pastor? You know, it just shows that God chooses very different people from man's choice. People of Israel had to learn that when they chose Saul because he was such a big, handsome man. And God's choice was David. And God chose this funny-looking little man to be the greatest missionary there ever was and have the greatest influence on the next 2,000 years of history. Man's choice is not God's. A man of tremendous dedication, zeal it's called in the Bible, sheer dedication, enthusiasm, single-mindedness, man of tremendous concentration. One thing I do, because he wasn't married, didn't have a family, and from his own experience, he urged others not to actually either. Because he said, that's enabled me to concentrate totally on this one thing to which I've been called. A man of incredible courage, a man of controlled anger. We're going to see when we study his letters that some letters are red hot. You know, they should have been printed on asbestos paper. They really burn if you read them properly. And it always irritates me when somebody reads them in church, you know, here endeth the second lesson, <laughs> and there's no feeling in it because they are literally full of passion, his letters, and some of them are really very angry indeed. You read my paraphrase of Galatians if you want to see how blunt he could be and how fierce he could be, uh, and yet a man of tremendous concern, of care and compassion, a man of tears, and yet his secret is not in his human qualities. What comes out in his letters is what made the man tick, what, what he lived for. And I just jotted down five, sorry, three things uh, that really to me summed up his secret. I wrote them down yesterday, so this is hot from the press too. I, I was thinking, what actually made Paul the man he was? And I wrote three words, Christ, Gospel and Grace. Christ. There was no doubt this man absolutely lived for Christ. He says, to me, to live is Christ. And from the day that he met Christ on the Damascus Road, he was totally absorbed with Jesus. That was why he was able to say, if I die, I'm better off. He said, I long to depart and be with Christ, for it's far better. Not, well, if my time has come, I'll go. <laughs> He was eager to go, eager to die, because he lived for Christ, and he'd be closer to Christ if he died. He calls himself the slave of Christ. He said, he bought me, I'm his slave. He often began a letter, Paul the Apostle, a slave of Jesus. And to be a slave in the ancient world was to be despised. You were totally owned by somebody else. You had no spare time of your own, no money of your own, nothing of your own. You belonged totally to somebody else. And he calls himself a slave of Jesus. And yet he also calls himself an ambassador for Christ. 
very interesting combination of high and low social standing. A slave, yet an ambassador. He was proud to be an ambassador and yet proud to be a slave. Uh, I just want to sh throw something in here and some of you will realize the relevance of it. Paul very rarely talked about Christ in me. Only once or twice in all the letters did he ever say Christ is me. Dozens and dozens of times he said, I am in Christ. Now that's very, very important because if we talk so much about Jesus in me, you reduce Jesus in size to a little Jesus inside my heart. The lesser is in the greater. Do you follow me? Now when Paul talked about the Holy Spirit, he nearly always said, the Spirit is in me. But when he talked about Christ, he said, I am in Christ. I remember talking to a German pastor years ago and he told me how in the 1930s he was in the Hitler Youth. And when he joined the Hitler Youth, he stood in front of a German officer who said, what is your name? And he gave his name. And the officer said, and what is your address? Where do you live? And he said, I live in Hamburg. And the officer said, wrong answer, where do you live? He said, I live in Germany. Wrong answer, where do you live? He said, I live in the Third Reich. Wrong answer, where do you live? He said, I don't know what you want me to say. And the officer said, you must say, I live in Hitler. I live in Hitler. And that German pastor said to me, later I began to live in Christ. You could see what it, what it was, this total devotion. I just throw that in. Uh, I'm much happier to hear people say, I'm in Christ rather than Christ is in me because he's the greater and we are in him. It is in Christ that we are blessed with every blessing. It's in him that everything is ours. I just throw that in. But Paul was a man in Christ. That was his address wherever he was in the Roman Empire. That was his climate, his environment. He was in Christ. The second great motivation of his life was the gospel. He would do anything if it spread the gospel. And that is why he could even find prison a thing to rejoice in. He said, I may be in chains, but he said, uh, this is virtually what he was saying in the letter to the Philippians, he said, I'm chained to a Roman soldier eight hours at a time. I get three captive congregations a day. <laughs> and he said, we now have Christians in Caesar's household. See? So he said, I may be bound, but the word of God isn't. And then there were people who, while he was in prison, grabbed his pulpit and preached out of rivalry to him and were glad he was locked up so that they could grab his pulpit. And he says in Philippians, I hear they're doing it out of rivalry and jealousy of me. But he said, hallelujah, the gospel's being preached. I don't care why they preach it as long as they're preaching. Here's a man who lived for the gospel. And he said, I owe it to everybody. He didn't regard it as responsibility so much as a debt. See, if you discovered a cure for cancer, what would be your relationship to all those suffering from it? You would owe it to them to tell them, wouldn't you? Would you not feel under obligation to? Well, Paul says, I am under obligation. I'm a debtor both to Jew and Greek. I owe it to the world. I owe it to them. 
And so he would do anything for the gospel. That's why he was an ambassador. And he would go anywhere to tell anybody what God had done in Christ. And just let me give you two little words to qualify his gospel. It was an eschatological gospel. There's a word for you to get your tongue around. Eschatology comes from the Greek word eschaton, the last things, and it means the future. And his gospel was an eschatological gospel. And what I mean by that is that it was a gospel about the future, a future that had invaded the present. And if we forget that future dimension of the gospel, we forget the gospel itself. The gospel is not just good news about life here. It's good news of a new world coming, of new bodies that we're going to get. It's good news of Jesus coming back. There'll be a conference later this month where 60 national leaders will be getting together because they share a burden that the eschatological dimension of the gospel has been neglected in the church in England. We're not singing about the second coming, have you noticed? We're not singing about heaven. We've become totally concerned with our problems in this world and how to live now. But the gospel is eschatological. It was a kingdom that's going to come and a king that's going to come. And all the time, Paul saw the gospel as the future that you can already enjoy now with the people of tomorrow. And uh, the other side to his gospel, the other word that qualifies it, his gospel was an ethical gospel. He wasn't interested in a saving of souls that didn't result in a different lifestyle. And his gospel was a gospel of the future. It was also a gospel of living it out in daily life. Now I want to say more about that later. The third word I wrote down was grace. Paul could never get over the fact that Jesus claimed him when he was on his way to put Christians in prison. He just could never get over the fact that what he was was totally undeserved and that if Jesus had given him what he deserved, he'd have been in hell. He just couldn't get over. That's what grace means. It means something that you just don't deserve, that is freely given to you. It's summed up in the statement in Romans, Paul says, while we were yet enemies, Christ died for us. And of course, that was so true of him. He was an enemy. He was using his whole energy to fight against Christ. And Christ said, I'm going to use you. You're going to be one of mine. Now this grace produces gratitude. And you can see that the motive of gratitude is behind so much of this man's labours. He was so grateful for being treated so contrary to what he deserved that the grace of the Lord Jesus became the motivation of his life. Now those three words, we could add many more, but those were the three that I felt yesterday were the three big things in Paul's life. Christ was the biggest. He was in Christ. The gospel was the thing that he wanted others to have more than anything else. And the sheer grace of God was what motivated him. Now let's look at his letters. The most famous letter writer in history. If you enjoy reading other people's letters, you will love the New Testament because it's full of letters addressed to other people. Now, letter writing was very rare among Jews. There are very, very few letters written by Jews in the ancient world. The reason is very simple. They lived in a small country that didn't need letters. 
And of course, writing letters was a very expensive occupation. There was an imperial postal service in the Roman Empire, but it was for the exclusive use of Roman officials. Ordinary people could not go to the mailbox and put a letter in. You just couldn't do that. You could write a letter, but then you had to find a postman who would go all the way with it so that you didn't write many letters and if you lived close to your relatives you didn't write letters, you went to see them or you gave a message to a friend who was passing their house. So within Israel very, very few letters were written. In the Roman Empire quite a lot were written but usually by officials or by wealthy people who could afford to pay a postman to take it all the way. There was no postal service. So you had to have a pretty big reason for writing a letter. You wouldn't just, you know, wish you were here having a lovely time. You, you wouldn't write that kind of postcard. You would write a letter about a crisis or a major problem. And of course every letter of Paul's was written for that kind of crisis situation. Usually in the ancient world letters were quite short, one sheet of papyrus and anything down to 20 words. But then they would sometimes stick one sheet to another and roll it all up and then you could write a longer letter. Paul's letters are about the longest we've got from the ancient world. His average length was about 1300 words. That's long. You can imagine that handwritten on a one strip of paper. It's quite a scroll. And his letter to the Romans is 7114 words which is the longest ever letter written in those days. <laughs> So Paul really put himself into these letters. Now he followed the format of every letter. If you can imagine a piece of paper rolled up like this and very sensibly the first, the first thing you wrote on a letter was the name of the sender. Isn't that sensible? Why do we put the name of the sender right at the end. I get letters sometimes of 20 pages of people who think I've nothing else to do, no doubt, and uh, they put their name right at the end. So you've got to turn right to the end before you know who sent it. Well, very sensibly they put the name of the sender. That was the first word you wrote. Paul, an apostle, slave of Jesus. The next thing you wrote was the address. So the postman only unrolled the first little bit, you see. Mind you, if he wanted to read the rest he could, but uh, the name and address went first, so Paul to the saints in Ephesus or wherever. The next thing you did was greet them. That was a normal letter, so you greet them with some kind of greeting, followed by some good wishes for them, which Paul always turned into prayers for them, which is interesting. He didn't say the best of British luck. He said, I pray this for you or that for you. And then the next thing you did in the letter was compliment the person you were writing to say something nice about them, put them in a good mood for the rest of the letter. And it's interesting that Paul always, if he could, wrote nice things about the people he was writing to before he dealt with their problems. That's not a bad pattern for us to follow. If you've got a criticism to make of somebody, tell them something good first. It's interesting that in the seven letters to the churches of Asia in Revelation, which Jesus himself wrote, he followed exactly that same pattern and commended them before he criticised them. Just a little point. That's the Christian way. After you've done that, you then get down to the business of the letter and you go through that and then you summarise the business. You summarise usually in a sentence what you've written about. 
and then you give them some more greetings and you sign off with your own signature. Now most people did not write their own letters. I'm sure you've seen pictures of letter writers in India. You get somebody else to write it. In the Greek world they called such a person an amanuensis and Paul did not write his own letters. He dictated them to an amanuensis. Sometimes it was Silas, sometimes somebody else. Now that is important because it means that the letters were spoken rather than written. Do you follow me? Most of the New Testament was spoken before it was written. And you can imagine Paul striding up and down saying, now tell them this and, and tell them that. It, it's all really spoken. It's as if he's present and he's talking to them. It's very conversational style. It's not a literary style. It's a conversational style. Now, my wife's mother died this year at 90, 98. Just didn't make it. But to the last, her letters were just news, news, news. She knew everything about anybody. She had the most phenomenal memory, better than us two. And she would write these newsy letters as she was sitting in the room telling you all about her great-grandchildren, which are numerous now. And uh, there it was. Now that's, that's how Paul wrote letters. He's, he's talking to them. He's not composing a lecture. He's writing a letter and he's doing it because he can't be there. But he's as good as there because he's, he's just speaking and saying, now get this down as I talk. And he's talking, walking up and down and just talking to that congregation and getting it down. And yet it's in the form of a letter. He nearly always signed his letters at the end. Now, of course, there's something wrong with Paul's eyes. We don't quite know what, but it meant he wrote in huge letters like this. And he says at the end of Galatians, see what big letters I'm writing with my own hand. He particularly started doing that, as we shall see in the next study in Thessalonians, because people began to imitate Paul and send letters as if they came from Paul, which were false and did an awful lot of damage. And the church at Thessalonica had such a letter. So Paul was very careful to say, see, I'm signing this second letter to you with my own handwriting and don't believe any letter that doesn't have my signature on it. The devil can deceive in so many ways. So that was his letters. Now there were three sorts of letter that he wrote. There were personal letters which he wrote to individuals, Philemon, Timothy, Titus. There were what we call occasional letters which were written to churches and when we say occasional, we mean they were occasioned by something happening in the church. There was an occasion that called forth a letter. Do you follow me? That's what we mean by occasional, not just now and again. And then there were thirdly, general letters of the sort that we receive dozens at Christmas. Do you know what a general letter is? It's usually printed and it tells us all about uh, the family and what holidays we've had and so on. They are circular letters that really have no connection with the reader. Uh, they're not occasioned by the reader. They are general news and they would apply wherever you send them. Uh, the Pope writes letters like this now and again. He calls them encyclical letters. We call them circular letters. Do you send out Christmas letters and you send out all the family news and you duplicate it and send it to everybody? And missionaries do that as well. Uh, that's a general letter. Actually, Paul only wrote one such letter. Which one was it? Ephesians. Ephesians, that's right. Not Romans, 
Romans was occasioned by a situation at Rome, but Ephesians is the only letter where he doesn't deal with any local problems. And he gives a general account of Christian belief and behaviour. It's a very good letter uh, to study as a general letter. It applies to every Christian. But it's with the occasional letters that we have problems interpreting them and applying them. Because the occasional letters are one side of a correspondence. And uh, again, when I think I did in a previous study, uh, share this with you. Have you ever been in a room where somebody's on the phone and you only hear their side of the conversation? What do you do with your mind? <laughs> you know, and somebody says, I should see a solicitor about that. Now, what does your mind think has been said at the other end? You see, what has happened? Have they gone bankrupt or have they been falsely arrested or have they got an awkward neighbour? You don't know. Or, well, I'm glad you're fully recovered. And you're sitting there listening, you think, fully recovered? What from? You know, shock, illness, bereavement? You don't know. Now, you see, a letter is like this. An occasional letter has been occasioned by a situation of which we know nothing apart from the letter. And you've got to try and guess what's going on in that church that needed this letter. Do you follow me? Again, here, here's a telephone conversation, one-sided. And uh, you try and guess what it's about. Hello? It's come. Congratulations. How much does it weigh? What colour is it? Don't let your wife get her hands on it. You'll find it's very thirsty. For a caterpillar, it moves quite quickly. Mind you, you're on clay, aren't you? I might get one myself. Cheerio. What was it? <laughs> it was a tractor. Right, how many guessed that? <laughs> All right. How many thought it was a baby <laughs> at first? You see what I mean? When you read an epistle, that's what you're reading. And you've got to reconstruct the other side all the time. Say, so what was happening in Corinth? What was happening in Galatia? And then you build up the picture. You've got to do a bit of detective work and read between the lines. It's great fun doing it, and you get to know a whole lot. For example, Paul wrote two letters to Thessalonica, and one is a very warm letter, and one is a very cool letter. And you say, why is one warm and the other cool? What's happened to change his whole tone? See, that's the kind of clue. See, this is why I want you to read the books of the Bible as whole books. You can pick texts out of Thessalonians, but you won't get it unless you're reading the whole thing. We also have the problem of the culture gap, of course, that we're 2,000 miles and 2,000 years away from the background of these letters, and that takes a little understanding and translating. We've got to find the principles behind the practice and then apply them to today. For example, when we study Corinthians, I'll spend a little time talking about women and hats. And we've got to say, now, how do we handle that? And how do we apply that to today? You don't see a hat in the room, either on men or women's heads, but does it say that that should be or not. We've got to somehow translate the principle into our situation. Let me say two final things about Paul and his letters. Number one, thank God the New Testament churches were not perfect. 
Not only does it encourage us, but do you realize that if they had no problems, we'd have not a single letter of Paul? It's only because the Corinthian church was so charismatic and so carnal that we have 1 Corinthians 13 about love. We'd never have known that if they hadn't all been speaking in tongues. See, it's because they had problems that Paul had to write and give us a third of the New Testament. So thank God the churches of the New Testament were not perfect. But here's the final thought. There is in no other religion the use of letters for divine revelation. Why did the God and Father of our Lord Jesus use letters to be our scriptures? It is unheard of in the world. Personal letters from human to human becomes the Word of God. Now, we're so used to seeing the epistles in the Bible that we take it for granted. You shouldn't. It's unheard of. Why should God use letters to communicate his word to us? Because when Paul wrote those letters, he had no idea they'd ever be part of a Bible. Mind you, by the end of the New Testament, the second epistle of Peter refers to Paul's letters as scriptures. So they were, began to be, even in the New Testament days. But Paul never thought that. He just was scribbling off a note to Corinth. Why did God use letters to communicate his word? I believe there are two reasons with this we're finished. Number one, it makes God's word personal. Letters are personal. They have an address on them. And God's word is addressed to us. And a letter communicates that personal communication. Letters can be very personal, they can be very emotional, they can be heart to heart. And God wanted to use Paul's letters to communicate his word because they're so personal. And our religion will remain personal while it remains close to Paul's letters. The other thing is, God's word is practical. And letters are always about practical things. They're related to life, they're related to real living, to real needs, to marriage, to slavery, to children in the home, to daily work. All these things are dealt with in letters. And God wanted us to have his word in a practical and a personal form so that we'd never get into philosophy, into these academic theologians. You know, there are too many academic intellectuals studying the Christian faith and they live in their ivory palaces of the lecture room in the university and they discuss Christianity. That's where all the odd views that the Bishop of Durham gives us comes from. They come out of the lecture theatre. God didn't want to give us his word in lectures but in letters. Isn't that good? <laughs> Perhaps you've never thought of that before. I didn't think of it till yesterday. And I thought, what a great thing. The glory of studying the Bible is that you're constantly seeing things that you never saw before. It's as fresh and as interesting at the end of your life as it was at the beginning. And I thought, thank you, Lord, for giving us letters to show us your truth. In a letter, the truth becomes personal and practical. And that's what you want. You want a faith that is personal and practical. And so you didn't give us lectures. There's not a single lecture of Paul's in the New Testament. But we have all these letters to look at. And next time we're going to look at the letters to the Thessalonians. You have been listening to David Pawson's Unlocking the Bible. 
Visual materials featured in this talk and other free resources like this can be found online at davidpawson.org.